This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I am here today with Chad Singleton and Vince Ha. How are you all? Doing great. Thanks, Hill. Thanks, Hill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, so Chad has been on the uh, show a couple times before, so, so everybody's familiar with, all the listeners are familiar with Chad and Vince. This is your first time, and we're speaking to you uh, in the evening here in Texas. Chad and I are both in Texas, and you're in uh, in South Korea, right? Right. So I'm, I'm based in Seoul, covering um, South Korea and Asia po- uh, power market, energy uh, energy research. I'm staying in Seoul office, actually, the morning. It's uh, 9, 9.30 a.m. Which I was telling Chad earlier today that, that Korea has some of the best time zone overlap um, of anywhere in Asia with, with those of us sitting in, in Texas, it's it's a lot easier to schedule these night calls at 6.30 in the evening than it is at, you know, 9 o'clock in the evening with some of the other areas. So Right. It's, it's good to connect with the colleagues in the U.S., also good to connect with the colleagues in the Europe or in other Asian regions. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess the, 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 the real challenge <laughs> is connecting with your colleagues in South Korea. You're, you've got the whole office to yourself right now, right? Yeah, that exactly. So. Well, so the conversation today is really focused on a, on a paper, Vince, uh, that you authored on uh, re- renewable energy financing throughout Asia. I think the title is The Changing Landscape of Renewable Energy Finance in uh, Asia PAC. And I'd like you to kind of summarize some of the main points from this, but if I pulled out some of the information correctly, that the, the APAC region will, will be generating, what, 70% of the world's electricity demand growth over the next five years. And despite pretty aggressive renewable targets and ambition so far there there are very few countries that will reach uh the the, the targets that have been set is that about right Ben? right exactly so we'll we look at how much investment will be deployed over the next five years by 2025 and compared with what's gonna actually happen in order to meet the renewable energy targets set by the government right and w- what we found out is that most Asian markets will fall short of the uh, renewable energy investment required to, to meet the government targets. And one of the main reasons is that despite all those policy support and also electricity demand rise and declining cost of solar and wind, access to uh, low-cost financing will become one of the key challenges in this region. And the main reason is that in some parts of the Asia Pacific, the policy landscape is not very well developed. Mm -hmm. In some parts, the capital market is not uh, advanced enough to attract financing into renewable energy uh, projects. So we found different reasons for why there is not enough investment that will be deployed in this region. And we found that mainland China is the only exception when it comes to meeting the government target. We think that 
in in China, the government tends to set up more a conservative target, mm-hmm. while at the same time uh, putting in place more supporting policies to promote renewable energy at both uh, national and provincial levels. So we think that uh, in China, actually, the renewable energy deployment will be actually well ahead of the government target. But in other markets, we believe that the actual investment will uh, there will be some some investment gap in terms of the meeting the government target. And, and the areas that you you specifically mentioned: India, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and, and Vietnam as being the, those uh, I guess what five regions that that are most challenged of the what fifteen or so regions that that make up our Asia Pac coverage. Sure, I would be a little bit cautious to generalize all the the the. The obstacles or, or impediments to deploying the investment in this region because all these markets within the region is very diverse. Mm-hmm. They have uh, very much like country specific issues. Um, and we looked at in more detail of Vietnam, India, and um, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan in, in our report. In Vietnam, what we found out is that the offtake obligation uh, set by the state-owned companies is not very clear to sponsors and also the investors whether their investment can be protected from the curtailment risk and also determination risk. So many international lenders are cautious about lending their money to projects in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And, and we found that even I, I spoke to one of the Korean solar developers who are looking for opportunities in Vietnam, and they they've been waiting for uh, over three years. They built the office there, looking for solar projects, but they couldn't even uh, close the one deal for building solar project because it was very 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 difficult to to finance projects in that region. So you can understand, wow. like, yeah, why, yeah, there are so many challenges in there. We found there are some some attempts to tackle this issue in Vietnam, like Asian development banks try to mm-hmm. come up with some some um, packages which help provide some protection for the international lenders. And we see the the share of the Asian development banks in, in financing projects in Vietnam going up very quickly. So I think there are many uh, different approaches who are trying to address this issue. But in terms of Vietnam, I think it's very critical that the government should provide more clear uh, policy and protection mechanisms so that investors are very clear about what are the project risks when they make the investment decision. Well, let me, you know, and there's some other countries in our list as well, but I'd like to bring in Chad on on this, because Chad, this feels almost like maybe an opposite problem of what we're dealing with uh, in, in the U.S. and perhaps other Western regions where there's been seemingly, well, from what I can see, very little problem uh, getting capital to finance uh, renewable projects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're right on that. And I mean, I think there's a couple of factors. I mean, in North America, you know, if you go back to like around 2010, when you know your your levelized cost of energy for renewable projects were were, were quite a bit higher, you know, there's a lot of uh, reliance on renewable energy credits and markets for for RECs as a revenue stream back then to make up for that revenue gap. 
and 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 there's a lot of usage of of uh, um, power purchase agreements, which kind of guaranteed a a um, you know set price or some kind of escalating price potentially over the years. A lot of times where they were more long term, going out to 20 to 25 years. So there's a lot of security in that. I think what's happening now is they're kind of over that hump, kind of in the middle there, around the mid to late 2010s. Renewable energy credits were kind of getting less and less, you know, critical to project financing. You still had the production tax credit, which is a really big capital attraction mechanism uh, because of the, uh, the the tax equity benefits uh, that you got there. So it was it was a dual it was a subsidy, but it also helped attract um, capital for the tax benefits there. Um, so you kind of had this this really kind of locked in pool of uh, um, institutions that 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 wanted to uh, take advantage of the production tax credit. But I think we're kind of moving into a stage now where the levelized cost of energy is very low for renewables. So there's really not that need to fill in that gap, that overall revenue gap to you know make the project whole from the cost side, but more so on the revenue side now that you know, the the kind of uh, merchant prices are getting eroded away at, um, you know, there's there's a gap reemerging because of the lower prices you're receiving now. So there's kind of a renewed interest in renewable energy credits, but that mm-hmm. also kind of feeds back into you know the these contracts, whether it's a, a, a power purchase agreement or a virtual power purchase agreement or even a hedge or anything like that. Yeah, there might be some kind of premium in there that kind of gets chalked up to a bit of a a, a green premium that you know off takers like um, you know groups like Google or Facebook might be willing to pay that extra amount, but you know kind of remains to be seen as we're kind of going out further and further if prices you know continue kind of a downward slide. At what point does the off taker kind of feel like maybe they got ripped off or something? There's there's kind of that question to be had. So it's like. I feel like North America is sort of on the other side of the hill there of not so much filling up that gap for the cost, but now filling up the gap for the lower price that the flood of renewables into the market has had now. So, Vince, from, from what you're seeing, is that resonating with you from the perspective of the of the Asia Pac research? Is that is that some of the caution, I suppose, in, in the in the financing of renewable projects? Right. If we look at the cost side of the renewable energy. In our study, uh, we found out that as of last year, eight out of 15 markets in Asia Pacific, coal or gas power generation is still cheaper than solar or wind. So they even haven't reached the grid parity level. Mm-hmm. But by 2025, according to our forecast, the cost of uh, solar PV will come down by about 15 to 30 percent, depending on the country. And with that decline, solar will become cheaper than coal or gas in all of these markets, which signals that uh, even in Asia-Pacific, uh, renewable energy will become commercially viable without the government subsidy. But as of now, it is still more expensive and it requires government subsidies. And it's one of the reasons why we haven't seen corporate power purchase agreements taking off in this region, because the levelized cost of electricity of solar, for instance, is still very high. Mm-hmm. And the cons- uh, from the consumer side, they need to choose whether to buy electricity from the grid or well, entering into power purchase agreement with the uh, renewable energy developers. And the premium that they need to pay with the PPA 
is about 50-60% depending on the region. So it's, it's way more expensive. So I think most consumer, electricity consumers still wants to wait until the cost of a solar or wind comes down enough so that the premium is negligible and they can enter into maybe 20-year PPA contracts. And are you seeing what, what, what types of other, I mean, that, that seems like a, a real hurdle to, to, to overcome if, if you're not going to find any buyers at, at, the, at the current price, what, what types of creativity or, or, or new financing arrangements should be explored um, in, in this situation? That's a good question because financing, uh, so for, for now, when I speak to some of the off takers, but also the developers, I hear many key challenges also coming from the financing part. I heard in, in case of South Korea, for instance, the direct PPA mechanism just just became effective uh, last year, but we haven't seen any single transaction yet. And one of the reasons is that when they want to attract financing from the commercial banks, they usually require the project sponsors to guarantee that the off-takers of the PPA deals are buying 100% of the electricity produced over the contract period. So they just want to, the banks want to make sure that the off-take is guaranteed and there is no risk of curtailment, but also there is no risk of moving their manufacturing plants somewhere else, right? And that makes the the sponsors really really difficult because they cannot guarantee that these offtake for let's say 20 years is secured and they, they cannot do that so i think there is a big bottleneck i haven't actually found any breakthrough yet because there's no single deal uh, <laughs> i found, found in south korea I hope there should be a a combination of uh, more innovative financing, but also the solutions should also come from the utility company side, because utilities in general are are the ones who are setting all the T&D charges, all the other charges, and setting up the rules for contractual arrangement, etc. And Chad, how, how did we get around this uh, in the U.S.? Surely similar hurdles existed, or was it just a different, you know, what was 10 years ago so different that these types of questions weren't being answered or asked? I, mean, I, I think that there's there's probably some, some benefit of being able to look at, at what kind of went wrong. I, I don't want to say entirely wrong, but I mean, I'll, I'll take California as an example. I mean, you'll hear people gripe about, you know, retail electric prices in California. And and there's a a number of reasons why that is in California. But I mean, one thing that's kind of embedded into those prices is that if you go back to early to mid 2010s, California had a one of the strongest renewable portfolio standards in the nation. And a part of it was that in order for your renewable energy credits to qualify, you needed to be locked into a long-term power purchase agreement in order for it to to qualify for the RPS. So what that did for the utilities in California, like um, Pacific Gas and Electric and 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 Southern California Edison, you know they had to lock in power purchase agreements at you know maybe a 
you know, the, the the prices that they were at in 2012, 2013, and and here we are today, still paying for long-term contracts at the 20 early 2010s price when we all know solar is, is far far lower. So I think you know when when you look at APAC, I think it's a really is a smart move more or less to you know when we're projecting to to hit grid parity you know within the next couple of years here. But you know why would you lock in a long-term contract right now and and have these kind of consequences trickle out for the next 25 years when all you need to do is wait another five and then you lock in something way better? So I mean, I mean to Vince's point, I think there's you know I think there's a lot of excitement around that time and there was just a lot of you know subsidies going out. You know the ARA with um, uh, from Obama had just come out, so there's a lot of subsidies coming out, but. It, even so, they locked in some pretty expensive contracts by today's standards now that, that you know, we're still kind of paying for um, through the California ratepayers or any other you know, kind of early adopter states. I just use California as an example because they were probably the most stringent about those. So lo- looking at this, Vince, I mean, are, are there, you know, are there any other, I, I guess, we, what seems to be almost a chicken or the egg dilemma? Um, on, on how this gets started. Do, do you see a catalyst that helps to close this gap for one or more of these countries? I, I think you know that the paper mentioned that there was some policy within Vietnam that expired in 2020 and is still under review um, that involved maybe uh, feed-in tariffs um, and other ways to, to help incentivize uh, investment. Right. So, so in, case, in case of Vietnam, the government is still preparing for the next PPA template, the pilot auction scheme, and the direct PPA uh, template that hasn't been finalized yet. And many companies, investors are expecting that this uncertainty in the policy will be addressed in the final version. So it's something that uh, we, we need to watch out. And by the time the, the policy is cleared, uh, we see a growing, growing momentum around the PPA scheme as we are discussing about the PPA scheme, right? And and same is true for countries like Vietnam, Japan, South Korea, where there are many companies who are the suppliers of, uh, let's say, big big tech companies wants to have their supply chain sourcing uh, energy from renewable sources, so. We see that by the time the the market reaches degrees parity level, I think many um, companies for the time being will will choose to buy renewable energy in, in different options, such as green premium, or they can build their own like on-site generation. So there are also other methods of uh, sourcing renewable energy at a, at a relatively uh, lower volume. So maybe for the next three, four years, they can maybe partly source their energy from renewable energy. And then while the market is actually moving into the level where the grid parity is reached, then they can actually enter into the power purchase agreement. So I think that that's something that we are closely watching in these markets. So how if, if, if these short term if the short-term interest that you just described is three or four years, how does that get big projects to a start date? Um, if you're if you're going to wait 
till 2025 to sign a long-term purchase agreement. So you're asking like how they need to wait for three, four hours, for four years? The, the way that I just heard it is that if, you know, if people are waiting to get into, you know, the, this low price band that Chad just described we're in, in the U.S., so they don't want to lock in to, you know, paying X when they can pay X minus, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Y in five mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. What happens between now and then? What do, do projects get mothballed and delayed? All right. Is anybody going to move them forward? Well, still, you see a different level of subsidies given by the government in most mm -hmm. of these Asian markets in order to close the, the gap between the, the tariff and the, the cost of uh, renewable energy. So, so clearly, there's a way to to build and invest renewable energy projects and, and make it uh, bankable. Only uh, I gave the, the example of Vietnam because there is some, some clearly uncertainty around the, the government policy. But uh, when we look at, for instance, offshore wind markets, mm -hmm. uh, the governments in South Korea, Japan and Taiwan are all offering very uh, lucrative feed-in tariff or uh, renewable energy cert certificate price in order to compensate for the gap, uh, the, the, the cost gap. So for the offshore wind market, we see many international companies entering into these markets because they see this subsidy level is more than enough to invest in these uh, new uh, offshore wind projects. So we hear a lot of uh, joint venture being established or partnership with the local suppliers. Also, they are co-financing the projects with the local banks, etc. So there are many things actually happening on the ground, but you actually need to look at uh, different technologies, also different markets, because the, the, the market situation is very different. And, and am I right that the levelized cost of electricity of offshore wind, even with the aggressive declines that we've got forecast for, for solar, it's still relatively high in 2025 for offshore wind. Does that put offshore wind at an, at an advantage in any way for the, the project financing? Uh, for the project financing, um, the cost is one, one of the issue. As you mentioned, the, the levelized cost of uh, offshore wind is way higher than solar or onshore wind. Uh, in case of South Korea, it's nearly two times higher than the typical uh, onshore onshore wind projects, but it's compensated by the government uh, subsidies uh, okay. for the time being. But I think when it comes to project financing, there are some other challenges associated with financing offshore wind projects because in order to build offshore wind, uh, you also need to think about what are the construction risks. For instance, construction risk could be very critical because it can lead to delays in construction or it can result in cost overruns, for instance. And beca also because Japan and South Korea, for instance, every summer we have about 20 different time, different type of uh, tropical storms and typhoons. Mm -hmm. Right. This will all uh, make the construction process really challenging and both the shareholders and investors need to be aware of all these risks. And this is not the case for 
building solar PV farms. So it's, it's way more complicated. And also in terms of the technology, the turbine technology is, is not proven as the onshore wind or solar PV. So we heard that some banks are reluctant to finance offshore wind projects if the developer wants to use unproven turbines sourced from local suppliers. And it's one of the challenges that we see in Japan and South Korea because the, the governments, also including actually Taiwan, because the governments are uh, pushing developers, investors to use more local equipment and uh, mm-hmm. supplies, right? Uh, they are pushing the developers to source at least 50-60% from the uh, local uh, equipment. So this local content requirement is actually one of the, the key barriers in attracting project financing in offshore wind. Is there any analog here, Chad, uh, in what we saw in the U.S., or was the U.S. just much more biased to onshore wind and solar? Yeah, I mean, uh, offshore wind has just, it, it, it's kind of always been been struggling here in, in, in the U.S. to, to kind of get off the ground. Um, you know, th- there are so many projects throughout the 2010s, you know, little pilot projects, and, 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 and there would always be some kind of either regulatory red tape. There is a lot of of NIMBY issues going on here um, because a lot of them, like a lot of the offshore wind uh, farms, were were going to be uh, positioned around New England, New York, right. where there's a lot of you know ocean views there and homes. So there's a lot of opposition there, um, and, and and yeah, I mean overall in cost, the overall capital cost and 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 everything goes along with that is relatively high. I think just recently have we kind of you know started to deploy an offshore wind fleet. But I'd say there's kind of an analog for things that happened with onshore wind. Uh, you know, there were some areas that were having trouble building onshore wind, like in, in Texas and in the West, some because of just transmission constraints and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, and Texas actually stepped in. They made a whole program called CREZ that that actually supported the, uh, the build out of, of new transmission lines for those onshore wind projects, but but the point being was that you know in, in some of these instances the the state had to step in and kind of be this third party you know guarantee to to make sure all the kind of you know the creditors all all fell in line and everything there and you know the state was basically going to take it and, and I think for offshore wind you know it gets complicated because that's kind of it gets into more of a federal thing especially if it's in you know uh, federally controlled waters there so that's even kind of a bigger hurdle so i mean there's a lot of you know there's a lot of kind of uh, constraints there that just let you know europe kind of you know blew right past north america in terms of offshore wind deployment but i mean yeah i think a lot of it was very specific to different projects there is usually some kind of fatal flaw with a bunch of different projects that were coming up you know there's always kind of one thing that held it back before they finally got, you know, some of the first pilot projects out. So I think it's really, it's all kind of, uh, you know, levered on, um, you know, how the various governments kind of handle it and and to what extent do they want to, you know, lubricate the wheels there to to get things going. That's kind of how it happened here. So I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out uh, in, in uh, Asia. 
Do I remember correctly that the Texas example, was that Boone Pickens that he put a bunch of windmills up in the panhandle and then needed somebody to get the power from his windmills to someone's homes? And it it might have been. There's a period of time he might have experienced that. There's a period of time where it was just, yeah, you you kind of had this issue of both offshore and onshore wind. They, they tend to need need to be sited in areas that are far from load centers that are kind of you know a, a bit more remote. So there's always going to be this transmission question. But the transmission question becomes kind of a chicken or the egg problem in and of itself because those building the transmission lines want to make sure that there's a you know wind turbine <laughs> done and the, the people building the wind turbine want to make sure there's a transmission line there. So you know that's kind of when Texas stepped in and did, and did the whole CRES program and basically said, okay, like we're going to you know, basically guarantee this in, in these kind of zones that they, that they designated and said, you know, if, if the other person kind of falls through, you know, we'll, 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 we will have your back on this more or less is kind of how it played out. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if one of uh, T. Boone Pickens uh, uh, projects benefited from uh, you know, a, 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 a CREZ uh, um, uh, project there. I remember that's he was talking about that for back after you know the the natural gas kind of boom, um, but I don't remember exactly where where he left it. Um, <laughs> well, Vince, when we're looking at all this, you know, offshore wind, these projects are are so very large, they would seem to go a long way into meeting some of the ambitious net zero targets, and it could be a real despite some of the LCOE, I suppose, a higher LCOE relative to the solar project, you you could have a bigger impact with offshore wind. Um, so, so is that getting the attention, perhaps the, the subsidized support from some of these governments? Yeah, so as I said, the, the government is, is very much at the front to to address the, the risk uh, of uh, developing offshore wind project. Also, the cost issue is partly addressed by the government subsidies. And from our uh, research, we found out that there are actually two signposts signaling mm-hmm. that the investors are starting to to view offshore wind as part of their investment portfolio. So, firstly, the level of uh, project financing uh, in these three markets have reached uh, around 84% of total financing. And this uh, high level of project financing is very critical because project financing has been the dominant financing structure for more mature uh, solar PV industry, right? And that's because the project financing provides some benefits for the project sponsors because it actually helps lower uh, the project risks for Mm -hmm. the sponsors and helps scale up the industry. So even though the offshore wind is still at the early stages, this high level of project financing I think it's a very good sign that investors are very active in embracing offshore wind sector. And secondly, uh, the level of uh, debt financing in offshore wind projects has reached uh, close to 80%, which is on par with the typical uh, level of leverage that we see for the solar PV projects, right? And this uh, shows that um, investors, lenders have enough confidence to expose themselves to the offshore wind projects. So I think it's, it's a very good sign that 
investors are very active, even though uh, in the market, the operating assets of the offshore wind is still very small. It's only 0.3 gigawatts. But when we track all these new uh, financial closes of the offshore wind projects, we see that uh, investors are very active. And even for a large scale infrastructure project like offshore wind, which goes well beyond $1 billion for a single project because it tends to go up, the, the capacity sometimes exceeds 400, 500 megawatts, right? So the, the capital cost required is two, $3 billion on average. So you need to involve large number of uh, banks, insurance companies, institutional investors, private equity. So all different kinds of investors need to be involved. And we, we see that uh, these uh, early uh, financial clauses that we observe provide some good signals that investors are very active and, and see uh, offshore wind project as uh, investable assets. And do you see that changing if there is going to be uh, a renewed or a new focus on offshore wind? Does that change the makeup of the project de developers that, that seems to favor very large international companies? And I, I'm thinking specifically in terms of some of the integrated majors um, who are used to local content requires or requirements who are used to working in you know offshore situations, Equinor being you know, one, one of the big ones that has done work in, in Europe and the US. Orsted, I suppose, as being another, not, not an integrated major, but similar to these big project undertakings. Did you see the, the, the makeup of these uh, the developers changing in, in, in Asia to, to meet these goals? I think the role of these big uh, developers from international markets is really critical. And we see also floating offshore wind is the area where these international uh, oil and gas players and renewable energy developers and power generation companies are all uh, looking at very closely and making very aggressive investments because floating offshore wind provides some benefits in terms of a synergies with the, the existing infrastructure in this region and also the skill sets required for mm -hmm. building floating offshore wind provides some synergy with with the uh, uh, oil and gas companies, for instance, right? So they are very uh, proactive and we see some companies even investing using their own balance sheet for developing uh, the early stage projects uh, as part of their strategy. And uh, as the project development proceeds, the, some of their uh, equity stake will be sold to other strategic or uh, financial investors. Uh, we see that kind of um, typical, I would say, typical uh, investment cycle happening in this region as well. So I think it's a good sign that the role of these big players will be very crucial because the the Asian uh, Pacific region is very new to the offshore wind, and both the companies, industries, governments, investors, they all need to learn from the uh, experience in other markets, uh, mainly in, in in the Europe European region. Okay, so maybe just to, to to wrap it up, I've got a question, I guess, for, for, for each of you. Vince, you, you published your paper late last year. We're talking now on January 12th, 22. I think this was published in December uh, of 21, and your projection was out to 2025. Knowing what you know today, 
do you see enough change and support for change that uh, we, we gain ground and those targets are reached and the, and the financing presents itself? I think there, there are a couple of factors that, that we need to watch out for the coming five years. I mentioned earlier that the government has been very active in supporting the cost of offshore wind because the cost is, is quite high. But we also see some signs in certain markets like Taiwan, where the government is moving away from the uh, lucrative feeding tariff and they try to promote uh, auction scheme or power mm -hmm. purchase agreement. So that actually means that the investment landscape or the project economics will look quite different uh, because of the changes in, in, in this uh, policy. And I think the same will happen in South Korea and Japan as well. So for any companies, investors uh, looking at this market, I think they need to closely monitor uh, what will be changed in terms of the government support and also the cost of the offshore wind in this region and how the local content requirement will evolve. All are very important if they want to make inroads into this market. And do we think we ha we have enough time to, to to catch the targets by 2025, or or is that to be seen? I think it's it's to be seen from our analysis based on the the current uh, policy landscape. We think that uh, Japan will probably ahead of the government target, but in case of uh, South Korea and Taiwan, the the market will see a little bit of a struggle with meeting the t government target uh, because of the local content requirement issues and less experience of the local companies and suppliers. So I think it's a matter of time and these markets will clearly see a growing momentum in the longer term. But as we see the five-year time horizon, there will be a little bit of uh, delay or, or struggle because of the, the issues that I just mentioned. Okay, so so hearing that, uh, Chad, you know, if, if there's a learning from the, the US or any of these uh, Western models that, that um, would be, you know, really worth considering in the situation, what, what might those learnings or, or big learning be? Yeah, I mean, I think when we look back at when a lot of the renewable portfolio standards were first laid out in the US, I, I remember just the, the the general conversation always being kind of a like, yeah, right. That's like, that's never going to be hit. Whether it was, you know, at the time it was like 20% was, was the most aggressive target in California. And they got bumped up to 33%. And every time it was always projected that, yeah, that's, that's probably not going to be hit. And then lo and behold, they always seem to hit their targets. Um, so, you know, it, it, it can definitely sneak up on you, but I think it doesn't come without, its consequences too of if you're rushing to hit these targets and you're not designing your market to keep up with that massive change you know there's a bit of kind of push and pull there and i think that's kind of the state north america's in right now is that the markets that we have are kind of designed for the power grid of the last century not necessarily the the coming century and i think we're grappling with that right now so I think you can definitely blow past your targets um, with with enough uh, um, incentive there, but there's always going to be you know, some kind of uh, you know, something you have to pay for in the long run there. And uh, you know, right now, I think it's 
it's going to be you know, firming and shaping of of all the renewable energy we have now. So, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of value in taking these in with with some moderation or at least some consideration for what the the general impacts are when you're hitting these targets here. All right. Sounds like there's uh, plenty to watch on both sides uh, here. So thank you both for uh, making time and I look forward to following this and continuing the conversation at uh, another time. So thank you. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.